Chapter One, Part Two of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One The Problem Stated Continued. The term natural selection applied by Mr. Darwin to his theory of evolution is in itself a highly expressive designation. It indicates an analogy with that process of selection whereby man chooses the animals he intends to breed from. As by human agency, the special features of any given race may be brought to the front in the progeny, or as other characteristics may similarly be obliterated by gradual changes in the appearance, size, color, and structure of the animal and plant units, so it is contended an analogous principle that of natural selection is traceable in the world around us this process naturally tends to affect in nature the same or allied variations in species which man produces for a given end in this view natural selection is simply the natural result of a series of interactions between animal and plant life and its surroundings and the gist of the process may be summed up in the statement that in the process of selection the weeded out units die off whilst the selected and stronger units coming to the front perpetuate their race and thus tend through their superiority and strength to evolve new races and species it is an easy matter to summarize in a series of propositions the chief data upon which mr darwin's theory rests these propositions are as follows firstly every species of animals and plants tends to vary to a greater or less degree from the specific type no two individuals are alike in every respect each inherits from its parents a general likeness or resemblance to the species whilst it tends at the same time to diverge from the parental form secondly these variations are capable of being transmitted to offspring in other words by natural laws of inheritance the variations of the parents appear in the progeny along with the natural characters of the species this much is proved in the artificial selection by man for breeding of those animals whose characters it is desired should be transmitted to offspring thirdly more animals and plants are produced than can possibly survive each species tends to increase in geometrical progression and all the individuals produced could not find food or even surface area whereon to dwell fourthly the world itself that is the surroundings of animals and plants is continually undergoing alteration and change represented by climatal variation the rising and sinking of land etc fifthly there ensues a struggle for existence on the part of living beings overpopulation means a struggle for food and for other conditions of life such a consideration being really the doctrines of parson malthus applied to the animal and plant worlds at large Hence it follows that as some forms will be better adapted, by variation, than others, to their surroundings, the former will come to the front in the struggle. Nature, so to speak, will select those individuals which best adapt themselves to their surroundings, and will leave the rest to perish. This is the survival of the fittest. The change of surroundings, already postulated, will further induce and perpetuate variations in those individuals which survive sixthly a premium is thus set by nature upon variation inasmuch as the varying and surviving individuals will transmit their peculiarities to their offspring seventhly 
thus varieties of a species are first produced the varieties becoming permanent form races and the races in time differ so markedly from the original species whence they were derived as to constitute new species eighthly past time has been to all intents and purposes infinite hence it is probable that the existent species of animals and plants have been evolved through natural selection acting through long periods of time from a few primitive and simple forms of life or possibly from one such form alone such is a summarized statement of mr darwin's views his theory of sexual selection may be viewed as supplementary to that of natural selection and as serving likewise to account for certain phenomena of which the former takes little heed the process of sexual selection is that whereby the males of many species secure the females after contests the result of these contests is that the stronger and victorious males will transmit to their offspring any peculiarities of form or constitution which they themselves possess and in virtue of which they became victors over others in this way variation is again seen to be favored then secondly the selection of a mate is often determined not by the males but by the females in such a case it is assumed that those males which exhibit as seen typically amongst birds special features in the way of color plumage size or ornamentation will be preferred and chosen variations are thus once more produced since the special characters of the male will be reproduced in the offspring whilst the perpetuated accumulation of such characters will in due time modify the species and evolve new races therefrom by aid of the theory of sexual selection mr darwin accounts for many of the special features and possessions of animal races thus the song of birds the brilliant plumage and colors of many species and the curious and peculiar ornamentation of many forms altogether inexplicable on any ordinary theory of utility are seen to be useful or necessary adjuncts on the theory of sexual selection to the modification of species and to the evolution of new races the foregoing statement of the darwinian theory will enable the reader to follow with greater advantage the arguments and illustrations adduced in the succeeding chapters in support of the evolution theory at large it only remains in the present instance to indicate the order and succession in which the evidences of evolution are herein presented an account of the methods in which the study of modern biology or natural history is carried out forms the subject of the second chapter such an account will serve to place the reader in possession of the chief data from a knowledge of which the naturalist is enabled to construct a reasonable and harmonious series of details respecting the living denizens of the globe the special inquiries of the biologist are duly noted and the divisions of biology which supply answers to the pertinent queries of the scientific investigator are also detailed incidentally the bearings of ordinary biological details on evolution are also discussed and a suitable introduction is thus afforded for succeeding studies in the next and third chapter the reader is made acquainted with the constitution of the animal and plant worlds the knowledge of the general relationship of animals and of plants to each other viewed in groups and as individuals forms a necessary foundation for all biological studies whether viewed in reference to the theory of evolution or merely as a part of ordinary information respecting the universe of life 
as a whole. In this chapter, the bearings of the constitution of the animal and plant kingdoms on the theory of descent are duly detailed, and a sketch of the primary classifications of animals and plants is also included in the general history of the worlds of life. The fourth chapter introduces the subject of protoplasm. On the due appreciation of the relations of this substance as the physical basis of life to the constitution of the living body rests the clear understanding of many fundamental points in connection with animal development. Similarly, the inferences which the evolutionist is led to draw from the universality of protoplasm as the common material of living beings are only appreciable when the nature of this curious and all-pervading substance is set forth in detail. No step is possible in biological advance until the facts relating to protoplasm and its relations to life are mastered, and in the discussion of such a topic, certain fundamental truths and propositions of biology therefore fall to be discussed. Thus fortified and prepared by these introductory details, the evidences of evolution as the great process which summarizes in itself the forces and tendencies of living beings fall to be noted. The first of these evidences is constituted by rudimentary organs and the tale they tell of animal and plant modification. Here the curious nature of these apparently useless parts is seen to be fully borne out by the idea that they refer to a former state of things and that they represent the natural but deteriorated and vanishing remains of structures once useful in the ancestors of the animals that now possess them. The sixth chapter strikes a somewhat related keynote to that touched in the preceding section. The evidence deducible from the modifications which animal structures have undergone is largely in favor of evolution. The structures specially selected for treatment in this chapter are the tails, limbs, and lungs. It is attempted to be shown that these organs illustrate in the clearest manner how adaptation to new ways of life is induced by alterations in the habits and surroundings of animal forms. Incidentally, formation is likewise afforded respecting certain interesting aspects of the structure of higher animals. The science of likenesses, or homology, forms the special topic of the succeeding section. Herein, the general deductions of homology are discussed and illustrated from both animal and vegetable worlds. The broad likenesses between animals which were discussed in the third chapter are here specialized, and the natural correspondence existing between parts and organs, often of the most diverse appearance, is duly dwelt upon. In its general tenor, this chapter will be found to follow out the line of argument specially selected in chapter six. The subject of missing links is treated in the eighth chapter. No topic in all the wide range of evolution demands more detailed treatment than that of the links between apparently distinct groups of animals, the existence of which the theory itself postulates, and the necessity for which is a matter of popular notoriety. The higher animals have been specially selected for treatment in this chapter, not merely because the case for evolution is more likely to be duly appreciated when these forms are selected for discussion, but because the evidence is overwhelmingly clear in favor of evolution when the higher groups are examined, and also because links in lower life are duly treated in succeeding chapters under the head of development.
The succeeding three chapters deal with the evidence afforded by development in favor of evolution. All evolutionists may be said to regard the deductions of embryology amongst the chief supports of their hypothesis. Hence, as the subject is not merely important in itself, but also somewhat technical in details, it has been judged advisable to discuss the problems of development at some length. In Chapter Ninth, the earlier stages in the development of animals at large form the chief topics treated. In the tenth section, two special groups, the echinoderms or starfishes, etc., and the crustaceans, or crabs, lobsters, and their allies, are selected for discussion, whilst in the succeeding section, attention is directed to the special features observable in the development of the mollusks and of higher animals still. The twelfth chapter, devoted to the metamorphosis of insects, is intended specially to show how the development of these animals presents us with a series of highly interesting illustrations of certain modifications affecting the young of animals as well as the adults. The origin of the wings of insects and other details incidental to the structure and physiology of these animals are also discussed in this chapter. The thirteenth chapter revises, somewhat at length, certain problems in the constitution of animals which appear worthy of study, whilst incidentally the nature of the plant constitution is also treated. Both topics are related to evolution in a broad sense, since the factors which determine the intimate constitution of the animal or plant must also perforce possess a large share of influence in modifying the worlds of life at large. The fourteenth chapter, dealing with the fertilization of flowers, is intended to illustrate certain of the methods whereby, in the physiology and life of plants, the evolution of new races is favored and assisted. No more typical examples of ways and means adapted to aid and inaugurate the primary conditions on which evolution depends and to ensure variation could well be cited than this department of botanical science. The deductions from flower fertilization tend very powerfully, moreover, to support the doctrine of descent in other phases than those which are connected merely with plant reproduction at large. The fifteenth chapter, devoted to the subject of degeneration, exemplifies the axiom that the ways of evolution include backsliding and retrogression as well as advance. Many animals and plants have developed all their characteristic features through their adoption of and adaptation to a lower way of life than that pursued by their ancestors whilst whole groups of animals present features to the naturalist which could not be accounted for by any ordinary phase of evolution, but which the idea of degeneration as a factor in working out the ways of life has fully explained. The concluding chapter deals with the relations of geological science to evolution, and sums up certain geological matters and aspects of evolution which have been cursorily alluded to in the preceding sections. The general development of life on the earth, as well as the more special phases with which the geologist has to deal, are shown to support evolution fully and completely. The history of life in the past correlates itself so completely and fully with that of life as it exists today that the geological side of the argument in favor of evolution has come prominently to the front in every system which has had for its aim the exposition of the theory of descent. It should lastly be borne in mind 
that the evidence for or against the theory of evolution must be judged chiefly by biological standards and from the biological standpoint if an accurate estimate of its probabilities excellencies and powers to explain satisfactorily the phenomena of life and structure is to be formed the theory of descent has been frequently criticized with scant success however from other points of view than the biological but as a theory which above all else purports to present us with a rational account of the origin and modifications of living beings it is evident that its weakness and its strength alike must be sought for within the domain which the naturalist claims as his own hence the succeeding pages may be viewed as an attempt to summarize in a popular form the chief details of the evidence on the fair and rational interpretation of which the evolutionist is well content to rest the claims of his doctrine for intellectual assent and acceptance in such a study moreover may be most readily found the materials for a comprehension of those aspects of the subject which lie somewhat apart from the main pathways of biological study the interest of the whole topic need hardly be alluded to in closing these introductory remarks no subject which can engage the attention of the thinker in these latter days presents so many and varied avenues leading to allied fields of inquiry as the doctrine of descent as applied to man alone the evolution theory teems with interest and suggests endless problems for the consideration of the metaphysician the ethical philosopher and the sociologist not to speak of the multifarious features of anatomy physiology and geology which the purely human phase of the theory presents to view the concluding words of mr darwin in the origin of species eloquently describe the varied interests which the subject evokes and also summarize his own conclusions concerning the agencies which have wrought out the existing order of living nature it is interesting says mr darwin quote, to contemplate a tangled bank clothed with many plants of many kinds with birds singing on the bushes with various insects flitting about with worms crawling through the damp earth and to reflect that these elaborately constructed forms so different from each other and dependent upon each other in so complex a manner have all been produced by laws acting around us these laws taken in the largest sense being growth with reproduction inheritance which is almost implied by reproduction variability from the indirect and direct action of the conditions of life and from use and disuse a ratio of increase so high as to lead to a struggle for life and as a consequence to natural selection entailing divergence of character and the extinction of less improved forms thus from the war of nature from famine and death the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving namely the production of the higher animals directly follows there is grandeur concludes mr darwin in this view of life with its several powers having been originally breathed by the creator into a few forms or into one and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity from so simple a beginning endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved End of chapter one